So it's so nice for me to be here back at Spirit Rock. I am I'm one of the teachers on the Teachers Council, but I live in Los Angeles. And I moved to uh, I moved there about four years ago, and I had been back fairly regularly, but had a baby last year, so haven't been back. This is the first time back since then, and so it's just been a big homecoming for me. Really nice to be here. And um, I want to share with you why I went down to Los Angeles, which was I had I was very interested in this question of taking the Dharma and bringing it out into the culture in a different kind of way so that it was maybe less associated with Buddhism and more so um, more seen in secular terms. And so now I currently work at a center called the Mindful Awareness Research Center, which is out of UCLA. And I teach, I teach mindfulness classes. So I'm in many ways, I've been trained as a Buddhist teacher, but I've been teaching these mindfulness classes for uh, you know, the last four years, teaching it to the general public in the medical school. We're actually in the medical school, in the neuropsychiatric uh, department, the Center for uh, the Institute of Human Science, uh, Human Behavior and Neuroscience. And I t- so I'm bringing these mindfulness practices throughout the university and out into the general public. And it's really been this incredible opportunity to take what I've done here at Spirit Rock for many years and what my own practice has been and share it in ways that can be, um, this can be understood uh, or accepted a little bit more. And not that there's, of course, Buddhism, as all of us who are here and are connected to it, are very, uh, you know, it's very... What's the word I'm thinking of? Anyway, we love it. We're here, right? (laughs) Um, But there's a vast world out there that doesn't feel comfortable with practices within what is seen, perceived as religious or spiritual. So instead, we're taking it out. We're secularizing it. We're talking about it in different ways. And I really believe that mindfulness is not Buddhist. You know, mindfulness, so this is the language we use. We use the language of mindfulness as opposed to insight meditation. We don't even really say meditation so much, a little bit. Um, But we use language that's very accessible, and the word mindfulness seems to be very accessible to a lot of people. And as you're probably noticing, the word mindfulness is cropping up in the culture quite a bit. Although I was recently talking to someone from Spain who said I was trying to I was trying to. I was listening to a discussion with a bunch of people online about how to how to translate mindfulness into Spanish, and it seems like there's not an agreement because it means so many things. So this word mindfulness, it's it's become the kind of all-purpose word for what we do here, and um, and as I said, I don't see it as Buddhist. I think it's been defined and codified and paths have been written about in Buddhism related to mindfulness, to having more depth of connection to mindfulness. But you'll see mindfulness in, you'll see aspects of mindfulness in all religions, in spiritual practices. You see it in poetry, in art, in philosophy. You see this whole, this is not just a rarefied practice that one does by sitting there paying attention to your navel. It is, it helps. It's a good thing to do. It helps cultivate mindfulness. But mindfulness in and of itself, in my opinion, is our birthright. Mindfulness is this quality of presence, of coming home to ourselves, of being connected, of joy and compassion that are connected to mindfulness. This isn't the purview of any religion or any specific practice. Certain practices cultivate it, but it is inside each of us, and we've all had the experience. And so when I sometimes talk about it, especially to a very, very beginning audience, and I say to them, I say, no, this is something you've experienced many times before. Who here has been out in nature and felt completely connected at home and at peace? Raise your hand if you've had that experience. Okay, so I bet 
almost everybody in this room has had that experience. And I'll say that's a kind that's mindfulness. You're right there with it. And who here has maybe in the midst of some kind of athletic um, event, sport, you've gotten into the zone, you're running, you're really present there with your body, you're right there. Who's had that experience? Right, so probably about half the people. The rest of us like to do sitting, watching TV meditation or something. <laughs> um, or how about how many of you are artists or musicians or writers? And in that flow of creativity, there's this wonderful sense of connecting with yourselves. Who's had that experience? Yeah, many of us. Or who has ever fallen in love. And when you're with a person, you're right there with them, right? You don't have to raise your hand. But you know what I mean. So as I start to talk about mindfulness in this way, people begin to say, oh yeah, I know what mindfulness is. And then I give them practices and tools, and then they um, learn meditation. Because well, I explain that it's great to think about mindfulness, but mindfulness, we have, to, we have to have some way of practicing it. You wouldn't just play the piano without learning scales. So, so it's become a very interesting practice and process for me to share mindfulness in a secular way, really to share the Dharma in a secular way and watch this translation process out into the larger culture, which is really what's happening. Now, one of the things that has made it possible, and this is what I'll focus on primarily tonight, is this, this is science. So science in, in, is the dominant paradigm in the culture, in case we haven't noticed, or it's a dominant paradigm among many things, but it's something that people really trust. They really believe in science. You know, in a way, science is its own religion, right? We really believe it. It's true. Um, but science has been science has been very connected to the way we teach at our center because it's a way of saying, okay, well we've done the research and here's what the research shows, and then we can explain this and people feel very confident. So people who might not necessarily come to Spirit Rock might say, well, my doctor said it would be good for my blood pressure, so I'm coming here to learn to meditate. And we get that all the time. We get people, because as I said, we're in the medical school. We get lots and lots of referrals and people who are working with physical health, mental health issues, so forth. So the book that, um, that I recently, that just came out recently, is called Fully Present. And it's the science, and art, science art, and practice of mindfulness. And it's a combination of, um, of chapters that have the science behind it, all of the research, a roundup of all the research in the field of mindfulness and meditation and so forth, and then the practice, how to do it. So then I talk about it from the ter terms of, you know, as a practitioner, here's what you would do. And I wanted to, I thought what I'd do tonight was share with you a bunch of the science because I think it's pretty interesting, and you can get a sense of how it's being communicated, as I said, in the secular way. However, I will say that I did not write the science part of the book. I am not a scientist. I have been um, living and breathing around these scientists for the last number of years, and so I'm a layperson who's picked it up a lot and going to impart it to you. If any of you are here are a scientist and I say something really mm -mm, out there, the rest of you won't notice, but if there, that one person there or two, you can just tell me later or don't worry about it. <laughs> so, um, so let's talk about mindfulness and science. Um, first of all, the field is just growing. It's burgeoning. It's very exciting to see it. About 10 years ago, there were maybe 70 studies out there. Now there are probably 700 studies. So that's pretty exponential growth. Um, however, if you were to go into a scientific um, into something called PubMed, where they have the scientific, um, the latest research, and you were to look up, you were to look up, uh, I don't know, uh, heart disease and exercise, you would probably find 50,000 studies. So I say this to you because you've got to keep in mind that mindfulness and re the research on mindfulness is very early. It's very interesting, it's very promising, but it's very early. Um, and much of it hasn't been replicated, hasn't been done with double-blind studies, hasn't been done with control groups, although some of it has. And again, exciting res results, and I'll tell you about the, the interesting stuff and, um, 
and just know that that's, that's the state of it. Um, one thing to also add is you can't really measure mindfulness. It would be really great if we could hook someone up to a brain scan and then a certain part of the brain lit up for mindfulness. That's not how it works. That's not what happens. There are parts of the brain connected to the effects of mindfulness. So if maybe compassion arises or you can see kind of roughly where in the brain that's located or ability to en enhance one's ability to make decisions, a certain aspect of the brain, a part of the brain lights up. But mindfulness itself, you can't measure in that way. And um, you can also measure it, I mean you can't measure it, but what you can find out about it is through self-reports. So someone will say, um, when, before I started this eight-week class, I wasn't very mindful, but now I am. And here are the ten things, and they'll fill out a questionnaire, or there are some computerized tasks, things like that. But that's how you, that's how you start to, to study mindfulness. The other thing is you can't, um, we don't know the question of how long do you have to practice mindfulness before it's effective. We don't know the answer. So there was a very interesting research study that was done where they decided to find out how long it would take to gain some kind of mastery over a skill. So if you wanted to learn how to play the harmonica, not virtuoso, but just, you know, decent level, not Bob Dylan or something, um, what would, how many hours do you think it would take? 10,000. I'm hearing anything from 20 to 10,000. The research shows it was 50, 50 hours. 50, somebody's got it right. Okay, excellent. You get a something, a prize. How about the piano? How many hours to play the piano at a decent level? 100, 400. Okay, the answer is 450 hours. How about the violin? 700. 1,200 hours. How about competitive swimming on the level of a 12th grader? They did this with high school students, actually, the whole thing. 6,000 to 8,000 hours. How about meditation to become pretty good at it? What does that mean? Someone said 30 years doesn't work, I know. <laughs> uh, you're right. We have no idea. We don't know. They haven't done, they, there's, that has not been researched yet. Um, so anyway, just keep in mind that the science of this is very early. Back to what I was saying. So let's talk about, let's talk about some of the areas where science has shown some improvement. But before we do this, when we talk about this kind of thing, it's easy to get caught up in our minds, you know, and get really interested and in, into the little details. And I just want to remind us to come back to our bodies. So I'd like us to just take a breath and sense your body. Notice your posture. Relax. And see if we can remember the mindfulness, the actual experience of mindfulness, as well as hearing about it. So mindfulness and, um, and, men and physical health is one of the main areas that's been explored. And what it seems to show is that mindfulness is extremely helpful for any stress-related conditions, but also so are other kinds of meditation. So if you were to do a progressive relaxation meditation on a regular basis, that would be helpful. Transcendental meditation on a regular basis, that would be helpful. Mindfulness meditation on a regular basis, helpful. So all of these, the, when they look at the results, the cortisol level, when they look at blood pressure changes over time, they see that, that things are improving. So this is, this is very encouraging. It's also been very useful for people working with chronic pain. And I think many of you are familiar with John Kabat-Zinn's work. And he's really, you know, he is sort of the guru of all this. He brought mindfulness to the medical world and um, taught mindfulness-based stress reduction. And now it's, that's being taught around the world. And what it seemed to show was, what he did was he took the patients who were the hardest to work with, who had such severe chronic pain, and um, taught them mindfulness. 
the doctors had not, didn't know what else to do with them. He said, here, you take them. He taught them mindfulness. And at the end of a period of time, these people reported much more ability to tolerate pain and the ability to, um, to, to just be happier. People are happier. And I want to actually flag that and say that across the studies, and there are many, many studies, I said somewhere close to a thousand studies on mindfulness, the finding that is consistent is that people who practice mindfulness and also meditate feel better. They're happier. That's the basic one. You could say, oh, does it improve the health? Does it do this? It does all of those things, but the very consistent finding is happiness, which I love. And for those of you who've been practicing for a while, you, you, you may know, you may say, yeah, that's right. I'm happier now that I practice. So with the, with the pain studies, the chronic pain seemed to improve. One's ability to tolerate pain improved. And this one has been replicated many, many, many times. And really what it's about is learning how to separate the experience of the physical pain from the mental suffering we create. Right? We create these stories about our pain. I'm in so much pain and ouch, I'm, it's going to last forever. I'm such a bad person that this has happened. If I had only lived my life differently, etc. These stories that we create, with mindfulness we begin to see them more clearly and separate them out from the actual physical experience which we're, lear- which we're trained through mindfulness to be present to. There's also been uh, studies related to the immune response. Someone studied, um, this was at UCLA a few years ago, people who were HIV positive. They went through an eight-week program. They didn't practice so much from what I understand, but those who did at least some practice compared to the control group, their T-cell count stayed stable during the course of the study, whereas those who didn't practice, their T-cell count went down. So the T-cell count is an indicator of the immune response, and it stayed steady, which was stable, which was a very great finding. Another study that, um, that's kind of interesting is around psoriasis, so that itchy skin condition. I guess the, the typical treatment for that is you go into these kind of light tanning booths, UV ray booths, and, um, and what they did was they had one group listen to a book on tape, and another book, a group listened to a meditation CD and they practiced along with it. And those people healed three times faster than the people who did the um, book on tape. So that actually was a controlled study. That's a, that's a pretty good study. It's kind of a famous one. So, so this is just a little bit of the territory around how mindfulness is helpful. Mindfulness is helpful around physical health and what the research is showing. Let's take another breath together. Isn't it amazing how easy it is to get up into our heads and out of our bodies? It's so common. So another area that mindfulness has been shown to be helpful is in the area of attention. And for those of you who practiced, uh, who practice, you know this because you're teaching yourself to pay attention again after a moment after moment after moment. Um, here's an interesting quote from a scientist, Sir Isaac Newton. He said, "If I've ever made any valuable discoveries, it has been owing more to patient attention than any other talent." It's interesting, huh? So, so mindfulness, the research seems to show that by practicing it, one gains more ability to, be, to, uh, to pay attention. And um, there's a study done at UCLA around ADHD. So we had a group of teenagers and adults, and we explored what would happen if they went through an eight-week program learning mindfulness. So they did it over you know, this course of this time. And what they found at the end was shocking. It was the ability to pay attention changed dramatically. And this was not just subjective. This was done with computerized tests where they were, would try to you know, track a little light on the test. It changed significantly. And when they asked, you know, some other scientists reviewed the research and they said, my goodness, this is incredible. What kind of medication did you put these people on? And they said, no, 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 meditation, not medication. <laughs> 
So, um, so it seemed to help teenagers, it seems to help adults just with that ability, particularly to deal with what's called conflict attention. Conflict attention is when many things are competing for your attention, but you have an ability to stay focused on one thing. That's the kind of attention that was most impacted by this. Now just as an aside, something that I'm very interested in is bringing mindfulness into education. We just finished a mindfulness and education retreat here up at Spirit Rock. And, um, and they've been doing some research with children. And the research with children is very, very small. So most of these 700 studies have been done with adults. But there's been some done with children, and it does seem to improve attention, improve focus. And they've done studies with kids as young as four or five years old and seen changes. And what's very interesting in a study that was done recently was that if a kid was really um, pretty attentive, and didn't have a lot of attention issues, and they practiced mindfulness over eight weeks. Obviously, they didn't do what you're doing. They did mindfulness games, you know, put a teddy bear on your belly and breathe three times and, you know, things like that. Um, but if the kid was fairly attentive to start, there wasn't a huge change. But the children who were severely dysregulated, who had lots of issues with their attention, big changes. And so this is interesting in terms of how a, um, mindfulness could be used as a treatment for things like ADHD and so forth. Okay, let's take another breath. Coming into our bodies, feeling our bodies present. No, noticing that capacity to actually listen and still be present and mindful at the same time healing our bodies. So another area is the area of mental health. And mental health has been very interested in mindfulness. And actually, if you're in the therapy world, you know that mindfulness is very, very big there, right? Um, mindfulness, the research has been, show, well, first of all, it's been incorporated into many treatments for people with um, anxiety, depression, borderline personality, obsessive-compulsive disorder, uh, substance abuse, mindfulness is being incorporated into these trainings. Um, and mindfulness is showing to be very helpful for that ability to work with challenging emotions. So a study that was done a few years ago that I really like was a study where they were exploring how we relate to emotions and how easily we can calm them down or not calm them down. So they had a group of people looking at photos on the wall, like the slides of people who were scared, who were disgusted, who were angry. So people would make faces and scary faces. And underneath was a little label, like, okay, that person is fearful, that person is disgusted, angry. Or it had Mary, Fred, Georgia to kind of select in that way. And the people were, um, had their brain scanned during this. And as they did it, what they saw was that, was that um, when somebody noticed a fearful face or an angry face, a part of the brain that's called the amygdala, which is the, it's, a very, it's considered to be the most primitive part of the brain, it reacts in the fight or flight or fear responses, right? So it reacted immediately when it saw the image. But if the person labeled it and said disgust or fear or anger, Immediately, the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for calming the body and brain, kicked in. It kicked in, and it actually then calmed you down. And the people who just said Mary or George or Fred, nothing happened. And even more interesting, the people who considered themselves to be more mindful from the start based on a questionnaire actually were more successful at it than the people who considered themselves less mindful. So it seems to be that that when you have some confidence in it and you consider yourself to be mindful, it helps to make you more mindful, sort of. So that was one study that was done. And that labeling, that recognizing that you're in the midst of an experience while you're in it helps calm the nervous system down. Another study that I really like was a study that they did with mindfulness-based... Um, so there's cognitive therapy, which works with difficult, challenging thoughts. And then there's mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. 
Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is different because it allows, when a, when a thought comes that's a challenging thought, you just notice it, oh, there's a challenging thought. You don't try to necessarily replace it or change it or have some other idea about it. You just say, oh, okay, there's a worried thought, there's a sad thought, there's a fearful thought. <coughs> so people were taught to either replace thoughts or to use mindfulness with their thoughts in this one study. And this was with depressed patients or people who had been, who had been depressed and were at risk for depression relapse. So of the people, there were people who replaced the thoughts and people who used mindfulness with the thoughts. Guess which was more effective? How did you know? <laughs> because we're in mindfulness. I'm talking about mindfulness, of course. Um, so there, it, was, it, was, um, it seems to be very helpful for working with depression. There's also some new treatments for, uh, for anxiety as well. And what it seems, to, it seems to show is that severe anxiety doesn't respond, like very severe anxiety doesn't respond to uh, mindfulness, I think because it's hard to get a little traction. But, once you, but if, if you're at a point where, the, it's, where it's less severe, so it doesn't have to, it, that's when mindfulness is incredibly helpful with anxiety, with repetitive thinking, with um, working with thoughts. It's also been used for helping change and create healthy habits. So weight loss programs have incorporated mindfulness and the research shows that it's more effective. Stopping smoking programs, things like that, all more effective when mindfulness is incorporated. Okay, let's take another breath. I actually want to go back a little bit and say a little bit more about this study with the brain. I'm sorry, with the um, with the study that I was just talking about. With um, the reason why people could be more who had it had a better effect, and the people who were depressed when working with mindfulness was there was a quality of, of what we know as a practitioner of disidentification. That when, the mind, when a thought came, we didn't take it so personally. We didn't see it as me or mine. We learned to let go of it. And so one of the things that I often teach, especially beginners, is I think many of you know this one, but the, the, the train, don't get on the train. Do you know that one? Okay. So don't get on the train. It's like, here you are, you're meditating. And, medi- and you normally, when we're thinking, a thought comes and we start thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. It's like you're on a train, you're, you're at a train station, you get on the train, the train goes down the track 20 miles and your mind is on that train. Or another option is you're meditating, you're at the train platform, the train leaves the station and you stay on the platform. So rather than hopping on the train and getting caught on it, we stay centered, grounded in the midst of it. And this is really what we're practicing when we do the mindfulness. When you do your, your practice here, you're sitting, you're here, you're with your breath, you get lost in thought, you come back, and you practice not getting on the train. I just wanted to add that piece. Some of the most interesting science around mindfulness has been done with the brain, brain research. And there was a study done at Harvard of, um, with people, long-term meditators, people who had been practicing in caves for 20 or 30 years, what we might call the Olympic athletes of meditation, right? And their brains were scanned. And they found that people's, um, there were certain parts of the brain that were thicker than people of the same age, okay? So the, these these. Tibetan monks who had been in the caves had a very thick prefrontal cortex, which is what I mentioned earlier, which is responsible for executive functioning, for flexible thinking, for decision-making, for working memory. These were thicker in people who practice meditation. The other area is called the insula cortex, which is the area of the brain responsible for uh, for regulating body and brain states, for taking in information from the body. Um, so just in case, um, so I think when the research said, I just want to read this because it's interesting. It says, um, uh, the MRI was used to assess cortical thickness in 20 participants with extensive insight meditation experience. 
Brain regions associated with attention, interoception, and sensory processing were thicker in meditating participants than matched controls. The, um, so the cortical thickness was most pronounced in older participants, suggesting that meditation might offset age-related cortical thinning. So by the way, if you want something else to worry about, you can worry about age-related cortical thinning. <laughs> Um, if you don't want to worry about that, you could meditate. <laughs> so, so there's, there's, it seems like the brain is thicker. Now, with this study, the one thing we don't know is were those people, did they have thicker brains before they got there, right? And they, don't, they haven't done these longitudinal studies. We don't know. We don't know. Um, but what we do know is that the concept of neuroplasticity has gotten a lot of um, interest lately. And neuroplasticity is the concept that the brain doesn't stop changing just because um, you've stopped growing. So for instance, they used to think that our brains stopped, stopped, were really formed in full, at about 20, you know, 25 or something. So actually, I think it was 21 they thought, but the car companies realize that it's 25. <laughs> That's because they know that it's still forming, you're not fully together and present until at least 25. But then, but then they said, okay, it stopped. But now what they realize is the brain conti it continues to be malleable depending on what you do with it. And that's why, of course, people are encouraged to do exercises if you're an, um, older in order to keep the brain healthy. But it's also when they've looked at the brains of taxi drivers, for instance, they find that the part of the brain responsible for reading maps is thicker than ordinary people. And when they look at the brain of piano players, they find that the part of brain, the brain associated with, um, with finger motion is thicker than normal people. So this, is, um, this, is, this shows that we can change our brain. And this is really encouraging. I love this aspect of the science because people often think we're stuck with who we are. You know, either I'm born, I'm Mother Teresa, or I'm just me, you know, and then that's it. I'm stuck. But actually what the science is showing is that if we practice something, we don't, we don't, um, the brain continues to prune itself all the time. So new neural pathways grow and develop and the old ones are not used. And, that, and so you can cultivate kindness, compassion, mindfulness, awareness, and other skills that you want to develop. And this is really good news for us. Right? This is really good news. So think about it. If you want to be mean, just practice being mean. If you want to be kind, practice being kind. And this will, this will change your brain. They've also done some research with people, not these heavy-duty meditators, not these long-term meditators, but short-term meditation practice and seen differences and changes as well. So there's lots, lots, lots more. I'm just going to see if there's anything. I think maybe what I'll do is open this up for questions. But before I do that, I want to read you a, a quote from the greatest scientist ever. And this is Albert Einstein. Maybe the Buddha was the greatest scientist ever. I don't know. Maybe the first. The Buddha was the first. This was, and Albert Einstein might be the greatest. Who knows? A human being is part of the whole called by us a universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. And I end with this quote from a scientist because ultimately the lines begin to blur, huh? You know, there's science and science is really going to help us. And if we can get all the scientists to understand how good mindfulness is, then everybody will practice mindfulness. And, or maybe if we just practice mindfulness, then those scientists will get how great mind it is. Um, but I think 
it's all, again, when I just go back to saying that, that mindfulness is not this special thing. It's not, I mean, we're going to measure it. The scientists will measure it. We'll try to figure it out and so forth. But it really is our birthright. It is who we are, this capacity to be present, aware, connected, living in this moment. This is our, this is our birthright. So I want to see if there are questions about anything I've said, and we'll go from here for a little while. Yes. Um, I got a mic here. You talk oh, about do you, is that what you normally do? You mic. I don't need a microphone. <laughs> you talk about our birthright and how people are, uh, you know, messed up mentally and, and need to get back to themselves. Hypothetically, and philosophically speaking, what? If, You'd think maybe the cavemen had it, were better off in terms of mental health because they didn't think about stuff so much that they weren't so wrapped up in their in their thoughts that they were just they were more here now kind of thing. I mean, just think about it because modern civilization, technology, and all this yeah. reading and writing and stuff maybe that contributes to our mental illness. Well, I don't know any cavemen, but what I do know for sure is that. Um, I think our modern culture is so challenging to people that the incidence of mental health is huge. It's like one in five people have some diagnosed uh, disorder, and it's even it's it's you know it's creeping up with children. It's getting higher and higher that people are um, on medications that we're overwhelmed by what this culture does to us, and I think um, I think that. I mean, this is why what, what this work of kind of secularizing mindfulness is interesting because it can help. It's a nice antidote to this crazy culture. Or this is why you coming here and practicing the Dharma is a great antidote. But I don't, I mean, it's hard to say. I think, I think it's an it's a interesting point about what our culture has done to our mind. And we only know what we have, you know. It's like the evolution of the intellect. Is this a good thing? I, mean, it's, it's, I think it has mixed blessings, right? Yeah. Mixed blessings. Definitely. The guy who spent 20 years in the cave was the one with the thickest cortex. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and those cavemen had really thick cortexes, right? <laughs> there you go. Okay, how about back there? Or, or you? Do you want to decide? Behind you. Nice to hear you speak. Thank it's you. more of a comment than it is a question. Sure. My children who have been blessed to be in an environment where it's loving and compassion and uh, filled with joy. So it's a small sample size, but I, I notice that it's a form of active meditation to be slower. And they've just come into the world that way of having a, a slower, less materialism. Um, it's amazing to me the comments that they say, out of the mouth of babes, and Art Linkletter said those kinds of things. And yet, I think Art Linkletter was really talking about how interesting <coughs> remarks would be. But it's so spiritual. Hmm. And I, I, to me, I don't think it's... It, it, maybe there's a genetic factor, but there's certainly an acquired factor. But who they hang with that are picked <coughs> and chosen by their mama, that there's things that come out of their mouth that is so spacious and so meditative that they are my teacher, my, mm. my twins that are seven years old, that my one daughter will say to the other daughter when she's meditating, they don't call it that, but I say, close your eyes and just <coughs> go and see what's inside. And then the other daughter will say over and over again, Lily, 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 trying to get her attention. And Lily will say, I'm talking to my God right now. I'll be with you in a moment. Mm -hmm. And there's something loving, and there's not like, shut up, leave me alone, mm -hmm. those kinds of energies. It's just, if we could have all got it early, we would be having a different group right now. Thank yeah. you. I, as a new parent, I see the incredible mindfulness of children. And it's just, I watch my daughter, and she is so present. She has become my teacher. <coughs> and I also see how it gets lost, you know, because we were all like that. Yeah. We were all really present. Not that we necessarily had a lot of wisdom at that age and so forth, but we were present in this incredible way. And then we got 
traumatized mm -hmm. and acculturated and we went to school and we had all this stuff. So how, in some ways, mindfulness is just about bringing us back to where we started. Okay, who has the, who's walking the mic around so I can... Hi there. Okay, sure. Um, when you say got thicker, I'm wondering if you could um, flesh it out a little. Does it mean that it's denser? There's more cells or... Yeah, it means it's like plumper, actually. It's kind of like it's more it's more plump and juicy. I know that sounds horrible. I'm talking about a brain. But, but yeah, there's more cells there. There's more, um, and then there's maybe more activity uh -huh. as well. Interesting. Thank you. Sure. Um, so, so do you want to just whoever wants to? Yeah. I don't. Okay. Hi. Um, first, to comment on what the woman before said about the children. Um, mm. I turned on the radio with my son in the back, and he said, Dad, dance like you're in the song, which is pretty good about being in the present. Mm. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if maybe you had any insight on uh, the process of meditation and addiction. I mm. know that, especially with uh, like opiate use, um, prolonged opiate use, that your receptors get densified, and that literally the way you think I mean, everything from your appetite to the decisions that you make gets changed. Do you have any? Yeah, I'm not so familiar with the research behind addiction, um, but I know there's stuff out there, and that, that's a big field that people are interested in. So um, I could refer you maybe afterwards, but I can't do it off the top of my head. Yeah, right. I was wondering about using this in prison with mm -hmm. prisoners. Uh -huh. Research has been done, or programs have been done. Uh -huh. The mic's not on. It's not on. So she was asking about doing doing meditation, taking meditation into prisons, and um, I'm not sure about research that's been done, but I will say that there's certainly a lot of wonderful programs out there for prison prison work. There's um, something called the Insight Prison Project. I think that's yeah, yeah. Is, that, is that right? Oh, sure. Um, for those of you who know Goenka, the meditation teacher, there's a great movie called Doing Time, Doing Vipassana. Um, there's, there's, so there's many initiatives out there for, for working in prison, and I'm not sure what has been researched around that, though. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Hi. Could you um, comment a little on, um, we enjoy communicating now through social media, mm -hmm. and it seems like a wonderful way to connect and, and with a lot of people, yet at the same time, it seems as it pulls us away from being mindful. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you have a feeling about any of that? <laughs> yeah, it's such an important question. Um, how many people here are on Facebook? I'm wondering, sort of generationally, whether whether um, how it how it goes around the generations. Um, so she was asking about social media and what and the impact and where mindfulness fits in. And um, so you know, I think this is such a this is such a huge and interesting field around around how mindfulness can be applied virtually, essentially. And I've seen I've seen it be this complete time suck drain, waste, loss of mindfulness. People get off the computer and they're, they, like, they need you know, to recover, they need to sleep to recover, or they're just so unmindful. I've also seen the internet used in ways that enhance mindfulness. You know, and people who, people who meditate together over the internet. So there's a website called, um, called mindfulnesstogether.net and it's for people who, pra who practice, bring mindfulness to children and teach in schools and so forth. And somebody, there a lot of different rooms that you can go into, I guess they're not called rooms anymore, but anyway, groups that you can join. <laughs> and um, someone, someone started one where she said, where she said I'm gonna send, I'm, she's a meditation teacher, and she said, I'm gonna offer 40 mindfulness practices over 40 days. And so you go on and there's two practices, one for four minutes in the morning and four minutes in the evening, and you just do these practices. And like 300 people are doing it with her. 
So this is social networking used in a really positive way to enhance mindfulness. And if you're interested, you can log on to that website. You could do it yourself. But I do. I also want to tell a story. I worked with teenagers for years, and one of the um, there was a, one teenage boy that used to come to my classes a lot, and he was really into video games. And he would come in. He would when I would ask them what they'd done this week, and he say, "Oh, I played video games. Oh, video games. You know." And I was just kind of okay. He's just playing video games. All right. But he, at least he's interested in meditation. And one day he came in and he said, oh, I really used mindfulness in my video game. And I said, really? How? And he said, well, I was, with this, I was playing this game and I got really angry at the guy that I was playing against. And I just decided to be mindful. And I noticed my breath and my body and I noticed my anger and I didn't get on the train. I probably used that one. <laughs> I just let it go and it made me much kinder to him. And I just thought, okay, I give up. <laughs> you know, you're, you got it. You got it. So anyway, I think it's all very double-edged. Yeah. Okay, there's a couple over in this direction. Um, hi. Uh, you mentioned PubMed. I'm Sorry? Not, you mentioned PubMed. Uh-huh. Research of, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I live with one. And okay. I, recently, <laughs> um, I recently heard about a study um, that was looking at what your brain does subconsciously when you're not doing anything at all. Hmm. And it was about sorting various different hierarchical things and social notions and sort of helping yourself calm down. And in, it's sort of related to social media because in this time when we're never not doing anything. Hmm. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with that study or hmm. if it had been applied to meditation. Hmm. No, it sounds really interesting. Moot then, but just like um, if, you, or if there's been more studies about sort of what subconsciously is happening, not just your ability to navigate the world better and how that affects it, but the things the brain is doing hmm. that they've studied while you're meditating. Yeah, I can't, again, I can't say off the top of my head, but it's, it's a great question. It's, I mean, and also to... It's like, how do we get out the importance of not doing? You know, because we're learning here as we meditate to not do. And then how do you measure not doing? Because in a culture that's all about productivity and doing and success and achievement, how do you show that not doing is actually something really helpful? So if the scientists could help us see how that impacts the brain and keeps it, say, in a resting state or whatever, it could be really, really helpful. Yeah. There was somebody behind, and then I think maybe it's the last one. Oh, maybe not. Um, Diana, what is the actual like working definition you use of mindfulness in, out in the secular world that you yes. describe that you're working in these days? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked. I realized I forgot to say it. Uh, you all know what mindfulness is, right? You didn't sit through the whole talk without knowing what mindfulness is. That would have been really bad. So the one that's kind of used in the science world is paying attention to present moment experiences with a curious and open attention. That's one. That's one. They also, they can't agree. You know, they're like five. John Kabat-Zinn is um, paying attention in three specific ways, deliberate or on purpose uh, with with openness and non-judgmentally or something. I think that's his. so, but I, li- I like paying attention to moment-to-moment experiences with openness and curiosity. That's the one I prefer. Um, okay, so because I'm going to, I want to, we're going to end a little bit early tonight, mostly because I want to make sure my daughter doesn't melt down. Um, and let me just say a, a little bit about uh, this book. If you're interested in like a lot more about the science, as I said, it's in our book. It's co-written with Susan Smalley, who's a, who's a behavioral geneticist, and she's the founder of our center at UCLA. And, um, and we've just been really pleased to see, to be able to get this information together, because it seems like in terms of being a secular book, there's not so many, there's a, you know hundreds, going to the bookstore, hundreds of books on meditation, there's not so many that are secular. Most of them are come from some particular uh, orientation. So it's nice to have a secular one out there, especially if you want to give it to your uncle in Peoria or something who's never, <laughs> never who might not be interested in, in this. So, um, and the book has lots of practical examples and stories of people's lives. And so just let you know, it's out there. I have it out in the back. 
And um, I think I'll just end with a quote from a student in the book. And this is what she said. She said, I was on vacation in Mexico, and the whole time I was there, despite beautiful sunny weather and an amazing beach, all I could think about was whether or not I should be in Hawaii. (laughs) Finally, I said to myself, if I'm not going to be here, why bother to go anywhere at all? So let's just end with the last moment of breathing together. Feeling our bodies. Our hearts and minds. Noticing that activation of our brains and letting it settle. Letting whatever you're experiencing be here, be present. It's all okay. From the perspective of mindfulness, it's all okay. So I wish that everyone here is happy and peaceful and at ease, free from all stress and anxiety, and that you experience great joy in your life. I have to read the end of class notes. Jack will be back next week. Dinner will be served. Please help our volunteers by cleaning up. Help put, put away your chairs and cushions. Any assistance you can lend to tidying up the hall is greatly appreciated. When you leave, if you're heading east to Fairfax, remember to turn right on Sir Francis Drake. Left on Woodacre, don't make a U-turn on Railroad Avenue. Please, please. And don't forget your things. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.